On this season, we'll be exploring our bizarre beliefs, unfounded fears, and fantastical thinking, how they shape our psychology and culture, and how much of our past we can find in the present. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Well, Billy, you and I must tame animals more dangerous than bucking broncos. I help you control animals that could make you sick. Stop admitting West Africans into America right now. I'm also very much of a germaphobe, by the way. Believe me. I've still got this lasting, traumatic movie memory from when I was about eight or so. It was one of those disaster thrillers so popular in the 90s called Outbreak, basically a fictionalization of what an Ebola pandemic would look like if the disease mutated and went airborne. The scene I remember most vividly was set in a movie theater, and Outbreak had sort of animated the germs so you could see them travel through the air, from the coughing mouth of Patient Zero and into the laughing, gasping mouths of the rest of the audience, and then cut to the theater bathroom where people are coughing up blood into the row of white porcelain sinks. Of course, panics around germs and the diseases and viruses they can cause make sense on the most base, instinctual level. In a real sense, germs are kind of our only modern predator, and they're invisible and impossible to detect. What could be scarier than that? And we've only been aware of germs' existence for about the last 150 years. Before that, it was bad smells, demons, and dirt that apparently caused waves of brutal plagues. Since the major discovery of germ theory in the 1860s, America slowly accepted that pretty much everything had to change in order for safety to be guaranteed. And during the boom of American advertising, clean was in, and a slew of new hygiene products appealed also to the shame of being seen as dirty, as disgusting, as unable to afford the luxury of a sanitized existence. In addition, scientists and psychologists have recently found that our sense of biological disgust has actually evolved to include disgust with moral transgressions. But morality in America has always been a tricky thing, based much more on who a person is than what they do. Anxieties around race and immigration, about gender and sexuality and class, played out in the ways that products were marketed, and also played a huge role in public policy, which often included quarantines based much more on cultural bias than illness itself. Because germs, these microscopic, invisible monsters that attacked seemingly at random, were never going to stay simply in the literal realm. They easily became symbols, metaphors, that have helped reinforce many prejudiced parts of our social order. As we'll learn in this episode, American cleanliness and the obsession with germs also carries a kind of religious ritual meant to help us deal with anxieties. But it's also manifested into a subconscious fear about both the vulnerable borders of our own bodies and on a larger scale, the borders of our body politic. Danger, germs at home. Better shoot to kill with Glade Disinfectant Spray. It actually sanitizes the air. That clean antiseptic scent tells you so. In the late 1800s, as germ theory evolved, it was certainly difficult for Americans to accept. The public didn't love the idea of these invisible predators, but then again they long believed that unseen demons could do the very same thing. 
In some ways, it was actually a comfort that the illness wasn't coming from the supernatural. It meant that these things, these tiny bugs called germs, were part of a natural order, and therefore humans, and especially Americans, had dominion over them. They were something we could control and tame, the way we had the other beasts of the world. Germ theory at first mixed with the widely accepted miasma theory of the time, that gross odors called bad air or night air that came especially from rotting organic matter were the cause of sicknesses. Sewer gas, or the smell of their primitive plumbing systems, was one of the worst feared of the bad airs, wafting up, carrying these weightless creatures into their homes, one public health official said in the late 1800s. New Englanders feared sewer gas perhaps more so than they did the evil one. A New York doctor also said, Sewer gas is today killing more persons every year than the yellow fever in its worst periods of epidemic. And so long as water closets are allowed to exist, it will continue to kill. Before indoor plumbing, these dangerous smells had a strong association with the lower classes. But sewer gas also threatened the affluent. So, of course, something had to be done to stop this silent, embarrassing killer that struck even the most dignified of all the elite, the president himself. James Garfield was shot in the back by an attempted assassin in 1881 and at first survived. However, as he lay in the White House recovering, his condition started to worsen. In the days of sewer gas, plumbers were seen as almost heroic, wise in the ways of miasma theory. One New York plumber described as well-known told a New York newspaper, The real trouble is sewer gas. Because the White House was located near the Potomac swamps, it was considered especially toxic. Even though doctors warned that Garfield may die as a result of being moved to his summer home in New Jersey, the sewer gas was enough to scare them away, and he died two weeks later after making the journey. Garfield's vice president and successor refused to move into the disease-ridden White House and successfully convinced Congress to tear down the old White House and for $300,000, which is about $7.5 million today, build an entire new sewer gas-proof White House in its place. The House of Representatives, however, blocked the project, and they instead agreed to replace the old plumbing as best they could. As scientists started to better understand germs, attention turned from bad smells to dust, flies, and rodents. A terrifying ad for Tanglefoot flypaper showed a mother and a child in her arms with the words, Wretched pest, you have probably come direct from some hospital, garbage pail, or stable, laden with filth and possible diseased germs. Tanglefoot paper will catch and hold and cover you in the germs and dirt you are carrying, with a varnish from which you could never escape to trouble me, either living or dead. As the century turned, the ornate decoration, wood, and billowing fabric of the previous Victorian era were all materials thought to attract dust and therefore germs. Wooden floors were lacquered, leaving no space for dust, insects, or germs to burrow. Wallpaper was painted over yearly, a necessity for making sure that germs couldn't grasp onto the walls. Porcelain, linoleum, and tile became all the rage, and smooth, white surfaces became signs of safety and style, as well as wealth. Women's skirts shortened. It was believed widely that long skirts picked up germs from the ground. Another New York magazine said, quote, The germs of influenza, consumption, and typhoid fever are the least of evils which mothers bring home to their defenseless children on their skirts. 
Of course, traditionalists also had their say. Published in Harper's Bazaar, the column Plea for the Long Skirt noted that although doctors had, quote, figured to a dot the number of deadly bacteria possible to be gathered by a square inch of a woman's train, but what of a woman's mission to be lovely? But the younger generation won out as always, and a common phrase became, nothing unhygienic can be beautiful. I bet cowboys don't wash all the time. But you're wrong, Billy. It's not sissy to be clean. Who said that? I did. One of your best friends. Let me introduce myself. Soapy's the name, partner. In the same vein, men began to shave their long beards clean, beards that had previously been seen as symbols of high status, so that their kisses would not contaminate their wives and children. The revolt against the whisker has run like wildfire over the land, one writer said in Harper's Weekly in 1907. King Gillette, yes, his first name was actually King, began a capitalist cleanliness revolution when his ads for his new patented safety razor claimed to give, quote, the security from infection of shaving yourself. For a long time, people stopped kissing babies and shaking hands when they met or even when they saw a friend. This fear of bodily uncleanliness came with a new national shame, and advertisers saw an opportunity to capitalize, providing an endless array of product possibilities meant to combat these embarrassing sights and smells. Poor Marge. She'll never hold a man until she does something about her breath. Research shows that there is a direct connection between germs in your mouth and unpleasant breath. Listerine antiseptic kills them by the millions. Make Listerine antiseptic a friend of yours for keeps. Advertisers were telling Americans that their hair, their mouths, their underarms, and all their body cavities were home to microscopic creatures as well as smells that could offend others. Listerine burned not only into the mouths of Americans, but also acted as a hand and body wash, claiming to provide, quote, instant death to germs of disease. If you could look at your hands under a microscope, you would hesitate to prepare or serve baby's food or give him a bath without first rinsing hands with undiluted Listerine. The process of cleansing and the steps involved transformed into a series of American religious rituals, protection against the invisible, omnipresent evil of the microbe, replacing long-held fears of invisible demons for a more science-conscious nation. It endowed the archetype of the modern housewife with her own holy rites. She might bow her head in silent contemplation as she circles the sponge over the pure whiteness of a china plate. She might shave the hair from her body and feel pure, soft, new. Americans began imbuing cleanliness with the spiritual, going smoothly from prayer to pine saw. Ellen Richards, the home economist, said, quote, A fine action, a sort of religion, a step in the conquering of evil, for dirt is sin. Cleaning rituals have long been a part of religious ceremonies. And, of course, America made it our own. Home and body cleanliness became a symbol of the upper class and a continued goal of the middle class, while flush toilets and running water were still unavailable to millions of poor Americans. These people were, in turn, seen as in need of education, and hygiene missionaries actually traveled to the homes of immigrant families to teach them about germs so that they wouldn't harm the upper classes. However, those in the lower classes were, of course, provided no financial help to make these changes and then were blamed for the state of their community. 
As travel technology improved, immigration continued to increase contact with strangers from beyond the borders, reminiscent to affluent white Americans of the germs they were afraid would breach the borders of their own bodies. At the same time that the affluent and middle classes were forging ahead with their moral purity revolution, they were also casting already oppressed minorities as the source of contagious disease, as active agents ready and willing to spread their germs. Illnesses were continuously associated with each new wave of immigrant groups, often seen in political cartoons and newspaper columns as harbingers of death, illustrated as grim reapers, as masses of rodents, or swarms of insects. First, it was the poor Irish Catholics that were said to bring cholera, tuberculosis was originally thought to be a Jewish disease, and Italians were the carriers of polio. The United States eventually passed the Immigration Act of 1891, an act that excluded those with loathsome or contagious disease, which was used as a method to keep people out of the United States. Soon after, in the year 1900, a Chinese man in San Francisco fell ill with what some suddenly and without evidence decided was a return of the bubonic plague, and all of the Chinese quarter, which they called Chinatown, was quarantined, surrounded by barbed wire and police, with no Chinese people allowed to leave the area. For three months, Chinese folks struggled to get enough food to get services they needed. They lost wages and suffered racist attacks. San Francisco's city health officer was quoted as saying, I unhesitatingly declare my belief that this cause is the presence in our midst of 30,000 unscrupulous, lying, and treacherous Chinamen who have disrupted our sanitary laws, concealed and are concealing their cases of smallpox. Needless to say, the man did not have the bubonic plague, nor did he have smallpox. These attitudes continued to expand, with one San Francisco poster reading, quote, The cold that hangs on, and featured a well-to-do white man with a Chinese man on his back, whose name is listed as A. Hang on Cold. His coat bore the words tuberculosis. Early corporate America certainly played on these racist associations as well. Germs were personified with typical physical features associated with Africans, Italians, Chinese people, and Jewish people. The use of the word dirty before various racial slurs became commonplace. In pairs soap ads and dove advertisements, black children were literally seen washed until their skin turned white. In another, a missionary is shown anointing African subjects with the knowledge of hygiene. Underneath the image, the text reads, quote, The first step toward lightening the white man's burden is through teaching the virtues of cleanliness. But not only were germs and disease unfairly associated with immigrants and black people, they were also used as an excuse to control other populations, especially women who had the nerve to walk alone. As more and more soldiers in World War I were rendered inactive by venereal disease, the government felt that actions needed to be taken in order to keep the military strong. The government believed the culprit to be the new threat of promiscuous women and sex workers who visited military campuses. But instead of tackling the issues with the soldiers themselves, the government passed something called the Chamberlain-Kahn Act, known as the American Plan, which led to more than 30,000 women quarantined by federal and state authorities because they were accused of possessing the germs of syphilis and gonorrhea. Women who were found within five miles of any military base were automatically assumed to be sex workers, and any woman could be detained at any time based only on the suspicion of the officers for actions like eating alone at a restaurant, changing jobs, walking down the street, and horrifyingly for refusing the sexual advances of the police officers or health officials themselves. 
Almost all of the women were not infected with either sexually transmitted disease. These women were quarantined for days or even months without any due process in what amounted to a prison, and they were treated with injections of mercury and arsenic, which at the time were thought to help cure venereal disease. They were beaten if they misbehaved, doused with cold water, and made to stay in solitary confinement. These women were seen as the immigrants were, as threats to the sovereignty of America by weakening the national defense with their germ-ridden sexuality. If you can believe it, this forgotten chapter of quarantining women lasted all the way through the 1950s. I certainly had never heard of it until researching for this show. Soon, the miracle cure of penicillin began to calm down America's sexual germ obsession as deaths dramatically decreased. Through the 60s and 70s, vaccines and antibiotics continued to revolutionize medicine, and polio and smallpox all but disappeared, and Americans were feeling pretty confident that they were victorious in the war against STDs, in the war against germs, spurring on the confidence that marked the coming sexual revolution. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rignetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic. Investigators have examined the habits of homosexuals for clues. As we covered last season in our Gay Agenda episode, the culture at large dealt with the increasing visibility of queer people most often by ignoring them or pretending that it wasn't happening 
working hard in every way to silence any mention of homosexuality in the media, schools, or popular culture at large. So when a mysterious illness struck the country, one that seemed to be spread by homosexual contact, it was similarly ignored, especially by President Ronald Reagan and Vice President George Bush Sr. Without the government support that they were begging for, medical professionals, scientists, and activists attempted to understand whatever they could about this illness. Gay-related immune deficiency, as it was originally called, seemed to only affect gay people, drug users, and Haitian immigrants, which eventually translated to black people at large. Throughout the 1980s, activists were imploring the nation for some kind of mass panic that marked earlier germ scares. But instead of communicating with marginal populations about how to safely prevent transmission, Reagan announced a federal plan of sexual abstinence and a ban on HIV-positive immigrants and visitors entering the U.S. Needless to say, it didn't work in curbing the number of people infected. Conservative groups even blocked efforts by activists of condom distribution and needle exchange programs. Some politicians called for quarantining those who tested positive for HIV, with an op-ed running in the New York Times saying that, quote, everyone detected with AIDS should be tattooed. There was even an AIDS quarantine ballot initiative in California, and some states were able to pass some measures of quarantine. In some places, cops raided gay bars with rubber gloves and face masks, complete with bulletproof vests, dealing with what they called a lethal threat. Religion, morality, and illness again became linked as televangelist Jerry Falwell said on a national broadcast that AIDS was a punishment from God for the immorality of homosexuality and promiscuity. Reagan followed suit, saying a little more subtly when speaking about the difficulty of educating Americans about HIV, quote, AIDS information cannot be what some call value neutral. After all, when it comes to preventing AIDS, don't medicine and morality teach the same lessons? It wasn't until 1987, when HIV began to be detected in more straight people, that the real panic got started. Headlines from People magazine blared, quote, AIDS, fatal, incurable, and spreading. And Life magazine claimed on their cover, quote, now no one is safe from AIDS. Nobody knew how it spread, and so people were terrified again of handshakes and kisses, of sharing glasses, of being in the same swimming pools. Instead of receiving sympathy from the mainstream, it seemed that HIV-positive people were seen as essentially evil and even deserving of death because of the threat they created to American physical and moral safety. Urban legends abounded about those infected with HIV doing things like spitting on buffet food, leaving infected needles poking out of movie theater seats, and injecting grocery store bananas with their blood. There was even an urban legend called AIDS Mary, likely mimicking Bloody Mary, in which a woman would have sex with a man, and then in the morning he'd wake to a note that said, Welcome to the world of AIDS. We have, of course, become better able to manage HIV, understanding exactly how it spreads and how to prevent it with education, safe sex, and medical advances like PrEP. But the HIV scare felt like a major regression to Americans. It felt like we had moved backward and were no longer on top of this biological war. Come the 1990s, with its already mentioned obsession with disaster entertainment, enter The Hot Zone, claiming to be a nonfiction thriller novel, one which is filled with a ton of misinformation. Nonetheless, The Hot Zone topped the New York Times bestseller charts while terrifying Americans about the growing threat of the African disease of Ebola, brought from the jungles by infected monkeys. 
Sociologists point to this book as patient zero in the hysteria over Ebola, with passages like, He leans over, head on his knees, and brings up an incredible quantity of blood from his stomach and spills it onto the floor with a gasping groan. The only sound is a choking in his throat as he continues to vomit while unconscious. Then comes a sound like a bedsheet being torn in half, which is the sound of his bowels opening and venting blood. Come 2014, the book again exploded in popularity, hitting number seven on the New York Times bestseller list as it was confirmed that Ebola had entered the U.S. in the body of a black man named Thomas Eric Duncan, who flew from Liberia and entered a Dallas hospital. Not knowing that what he was carrying was Ebola, two nurses became infected. A true outbreak of Ebola was occurring in three West African countries, but soon rumors ignited that Ebola was in Idaho, Miami, New Jersey, that it had become airborne just as the hot zone and outbreak had demonstrated. Good morning. And the president himself addressed the issue last night, and he had to because, as you said, pressure is mounting quickly from lawmakers. In fact, these are the statements we've gotten from members of Congress just in the past 24 hours pushing for travel restrictions. We should not be allowing these folks in, period. Their reasons today are basically the same thing as saying that we should make sure that all children with chickenpox stay in school. I would certainly hope that here going forward, if a patient shows up saying he's from Africa and he's vomiting and he has diarrhea, that you wouldn't say, well, we don't have the lab results in yet. You would start treating that person like they had Ebola. Donald Trump, back when he was just a presidential hopeful, said on Twitter, The U.S. must immediately stop all flights from Ebola-infected countries or the plague will start and spread inside our borders. Airline stocks immediately fell. A Dallas man named Eric Williams, who was running for Congress, said, My wife and I went to look for some. We had to go to three different stores before we were able to find one bottle of sanitizer. And that was at the dollar store. They had three bottles left on the shelf. He went on to suggest that Dallas implement a no-contact policy, banning handshakes and hugs. Thanks to the swift response by the WHO, the only person who died was Thomas, while the two nurses made full recoveries. As doctors have pointed out, Ebola is a slow-spreading virus, cannot go airborne, and because of this would be a very unlikely candidate for a massive U.S. pandemic. But you can watch the Hot Zone miniseries now on National Geographic, boasting an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. Germs have been used as yet another justification for segregation, for moral condemnation of those already on the margins. Immigrants and black folks, women and queer people, and also folks without homes or those of lower socioeconomic classes. But also, there is a biological drive programmed deeply within us through millions of years that attempts to avoid the dangers of sickness. But scientists have also found that this biological response that prevented humans from eating rotten food or being around people who were sick into a cultural and moral response, an aversion to violations of certain social norms. All of this revolves around this symbolic idea of staying clean and pure. Research has shown that biological disgust and moral disgust both lead to the same facial features, physiological symptoms, and also activates the same parts of the brain. 
Because of this, the act of cleansing oneself actually helps relieve the guilt of past transgressions, while at the same time creating harsher judgments of others. A 2017 study by Cornell University psychologists Eric Helzer and David Pizarro further suggested that there is a link between political conservatism and contamination fears. Those who seek physical purity are also more likely to seek social and moral purity. Studies have found consistently that those with more conservative views also tend to be more easily disgusted and are also more likely to support anti-immigration policies. Conservative or not, researchers have also found that even being reminded of cleanliness can influence a person's political attitudes in the moment. In several studies, random samplings of participants filled out questionnaires about their political and moral beliefs. Half would fill out the survey while standing near a hand sanitizing station, a sign asking for hand washing, or physically cleaning their area before answering. Those that did showed more conservative values and were more harshly judgmental of others' morality than those who were not stationed by a reminder of cleanliness. Playing on those fears, and of course with absolutely no factual basis, Donald Trump used disease many times on the campaign trail and beyond, tweeting out, quote, Tremendous infectious disease is pouring across the border. One of the problems that people don't talk about, you have a tremendous medical problem coming into our country. Tremendous problems. People don't want to talk about it. This year, a former ICE agent appeared on Fox News to warn gravely that the migrant caravan barreling toward our southern border was likely carrying smallpox, tuberculosis, and leprosy. Of course, there has not been a recorded case of smallpox since 1997, but it does feel important to mention here that the original American immigrants, the European immigrants, did bring smallpox and other diseases with them that killed 90% of the indigenous populations. These travel bans that are periodically called for and enforced during germ panics appeal to this base fear of contamination, yet they actually make things more dangerous for the United States and the world at large. When laws prevent travel, they restrict life-saving aid and aid workers from reaching the countries where real help is actually needed, and this means that the epidemic only gets worse. Healthcare experts consistently suggest that the U.S. help with financial aid to the affected countries, as well as address domestic issues like improving access to health care and affordable housing that they believe is a much better use of money and time than a travel ban. Not only that, but a large section of our healthcare workers are immigrants themselves, and immigrants actually have higher vaccination rates than Americans. In many ways, we're right to be hysterical, to be terrified of sickness. Tuberculosis once killed one in seven Americans. In 1918, the Spanish flu killed as many Americans as the Civil War. Puritans and pilgrims came to America with emotional memories of plagues and the constant possibility of cholera. But thanks to science and American affluence, medical advances have rendered us very safe from infectious disease. Much, much safer than poorer countries that need the aid richer countries can provide to combat the spread of deadly diseases. Cleanliness and the fear of germs slowly turned into a kind of religious movement, a series of rituals to rid us of invisible demons that relieve our anxiety about what we cannot control, to relieve, of course, that primal fear of death, 
which is why disease movies like Outbreak do so well and stay with our memories so long. As the sales of hand sanitizers and hygiene products continue to boom in our immaculate America, most scientists agree, just wash your hands with soap and water. The rest is, well, pretty unnecessary. All agree that there's no argument against how important our fear of germs has been. It's propelled us to understand and stop the spread of infectious disease to create cures. But as we've seen, it's also been used, like so many other panics, to distance ourselves from those who are different. Psychologist Chen Bo Zhang also believes that our snap judgments of others are, quote, not based on rational reasoning, but metaphorical thinking that confuses physical purity with moral purity. And so the fear of germs, this invisible predatory template upon which we can project so much, continues to reinforce the feeling that social others are the harbingers of biological and moral disease. Because of these dangers, they must be quarantined away because, as the hot zone warned, a body may become, quote, possessed by a life form that is attempting to convert the host into itself. It becomes clear who is a part of the body politic of America, part of the blood, part of the heart, part of the brain. And it becomes clear who are the invaders, the germs, breaching the borders of our national skin, or breaking down the healthy cells of our social order from within. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we're following up our germ episode with an episode called Quackery, in which we investigate both fake cures and fake illnesses that shaped the culture of America. From John Harvey Kellogg's health spa to Gwyneth Paltrow's goop, it's a history of the snake oil salesman. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Assistant produced by Derek Smith. Produced and edited by Clear Como Studios. Voice acting by Will Rogers. And research assisted by Riley Smith. If you love our show, please give us a five-star review and come and find us on social media. And if you're in Seattle or nearby, make sure you get your tickets for American Hysteria Live. The links for that are in the show notes. Next week, our mini-episode is on the history of cooties, which, as you might imagine, has darker implications than any of us ever dreamed. Have a great week, and remember to stay clean, but not too clean. It's good for the soul. You have a tremendous medical problem coming into our country. Tremendous problems. People don't want to talk about it.